Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the latest CSG special. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado. Just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Uh, restrictions are being eased up a bit, um, and it's windy as hell out there, but you're going to have time today, I think, before the snow returns. Uh, if you want to have some safe, socially distance uh, down at the end the dairy block, uh, just having some wine, basically. Uh, now's your time to do it. Um, and then, of course, the uh, winter will return, and then you should probably, your better bet is to go to bfwdenver.com, pick yourself up the 2017 Cabernet, which is my personal favorite. But aside from that, you could get Pinot, which is obviously, that's their specialty, because these are grapes from Sonoma County, California. But uh, anything you like, they have it. They have whites, they got blends, anything like that. And they also got a couple uh, partnerships with Western Slope Wineries. Um, one called Restoration, the other called Storm Cellars, and there's one on the Elf, Elk Mountains that's really good, I'm told, as well. Uh, they basically have anything you need, and that's available at bfwdenver.com, as well as their virtual wine tastings. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, I think in a couple of weeks, I'll have a uh, something to give away as far as the wine tastings go, so I will let you know on that. And uh, that's one of their most popular things, so go there, book that. Maybe sometimes it's a little far in advance to uh, get to your next one, but these are extremely popular. Um, once again, they're located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Go to bfwdenver.com to get your bottle, have it delivered, shipped, or pick up curbside. Um, and you can uh, also get in touch with them on Facebook and Instagram and their Blanchard Family Alliance. When you talk to them or go in there, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest uh, well, what is which one is this today? I have to do so many podcasts. This is this is a CSG special. This is what I decided to call this one. Um, I got a special guest today, a guy actually I've been wanting to have to uh, to have on for quite some time, uh, and I just for some reason never asked him, and I, I, I I'm just adult for not doing that. Uh, uh, my friend, uh, someone who uh, has been with Altitude for quite a while now, he uh, does the radio show um, Mosher Lombardi and Kane on uh, 92.5 FM. From I think what is it seven to uh, seven to ten, Vic? Uh, seven to eternity, I think. <laughs> seven to eternity, and he also does uh, nuggets, nuggets stuff for uh, altitude. It is, of course, my friend Vic Lombardi. Hello, Vic. Jeff, an honor and a privilege to visit with you. Well, it's been I, as I said, I've known you for quite some time, and I, I, just, I couldn't believe when I when I you and I talked a couple weeks ago. I was like, oh, you never had Vic on. I need to have Vic on. So uh, this is a, a pleasure for me. And uh, before we get started, uh, obviously it's well known. Uh, you're you're uh, going through treat. We were going through treatments for uh, uh, prostate cancer, and yeah. uh, you were diagnosed with this two years ago, right? It was. Uh, in fact, it's funny you say that. It's two years ago tomorrow that I had surgery uh, to remove my prostate. So uh, my next checkup is going to be March 3rd. Mm -hmm. And that's when I go in for my latest uh, blood test, PSA. And for anybody with uh, this dreadful disease, um, you live test to test. So 
you know, the, the anxiety starts to percolate as soon as that test day approaches. Right. And you just hope upon hope that uh, you get the positive results. So for me, uh, that's the next big uh, check on the calendar. Well, uh, one of these things that I, and you got your podcast that you do, I forgot to mention that with uh, Les Shapiro. Yeah. And uh, Les is also my friend and both of you are both dealing with uh, um, some forms of cancer. And uh, my, as everyone knows, my brother has been dealing with it, with uh, leukemia for the last, since, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, August or late July of 2019. Yeah. And of course, this pandemic has uh, kind of thrown a curveball for everyone who has been going through treatments and stuff like that. So my, my question to you is how have you been able to deal with personally? I mean, have you moved past the immune suppressant uh, part of this? Are you, uh, you had, you didn't go through chemo or anything like that, did you? No, I did not. Um, you know, I had the option when I was diagnosed, I had a very aggressive uh, brand. So lucky me. And um, they judge prostate cancer on a thing called Gleason score. And the higher the Gleason score, it's one to 10, uh, the more aggressive the cancer. So I got a Gleason nine score, which meant wow. uh, it was advancing pretty rapidly. And uh, it was a mean one. And um, my option played out to me at the time where you could um, have radiation and go through ADT and which is, you know, um, androgen deprivation therapy, you can go to chemo, do all that business, or you can just rip that sucker out. And uh, I chose the latter and I chose surgery. Now, not to say that I won't have to face the other stuff afterwards if it does uh, return. Hopefully mm -hmm. it does not. So my therapy was just take it out of my body and, uh, and the ramifications that go with it. Well, and Les, I, I know Les has been dealing with this for a while, and his is, of course, a very different form of cancer. And I, I, I yeah. feel bad, but he's, he's, there, he's there in Arizona right now, uh, being cantankerous on, on Twitter, uh, like usual. And I, I, I think as far as I, I've just been thinking about you a lot lately, considering uh, I, I wrote an article a couple, uh, about four or five days ago about the choices I made to stay isolated. I read and, it. I thought it was yeah. awesome. Very, very eye-opening. And I could appeal uh, and relate to a lot of it. And do you do, and when you see that sort of thing, and now look, mine's an extreme case. Mm -hmm. Uh, because my brother has a very ag aggressive form of something that kills your immune system. So it's, yeah. it's, he's on, he's still on immunosuppressants and it's been, God, it's been uh, over a year since he had his uh, uh, bone marrow uh, uh, replacement. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that you just have to take extra careful care on. But have, have has your family gone through any of uh, like, having read my article, has your family gone through any of that? Or have you guys been able to, kind of navigate this as normally as possible. Well, let me tell you what happens. And, and I, I think I, I don't speak for everybody when I say this. I had a dear friend of mine whose brother just came down and was diagnosed with lymphoma. And yeah. uh, he spent uh, a month and a half at uh, the UC Health uh, cancer ward over there. And my friend, you know, he was, he was lost. He was a complete wreck. And I tell people this all the time. You're in this situation. For people who have family members that right. suffer from cancer, I think it affects the family members mentally and emotionally far worse than it does the people who have it. And people laugh and say, what? I, I think it's true. When you have it, you, you sort of mentally have a game plan. You, you, you know your body. You, you are, I'm not saying you're fine with it, but you're aware of it from an innate standpoint. When you're a family member and you watch somebody else go through it, you, there's nothing you can do. I mean, there, there's really no nothing you could give. And I think it makes it tougher for a family member to watch 
uh, loved ones go through it. So when I read your article, I could totally understand where you were coming from. You're doing everything you can um, to stay uh, away from COVID, um, not only for your own good, but because you know it directly impacts a loved one. Right. And by God, you're going you're gonna to make sure that loved one doesn't get it. So when you have cancer and you're dealing with cancer, it's just a different mentality. It's right. almost as if, and I'm, I got to be very careful when I say this, Jeff, I am not in no way trying to minimalize what COVID is. It's killed half a million people in our country. Mm-hmm. But when you have cancer, you almost get to that point where like, well, bring it on. What else is next? Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And it sort of, it sucks because it shouldn't be that way. And no one should ever think that way. Right. But that's sort of the feeling you get. And I don't want that feeling. Nobody right. should ever go through that. Nobody should have to live through that. So when I read your account, I said to myself, man, that's a guy who obviously loves his brother. And there are a lot of people like that, that have family members that if they get COVID, it's, it's gonzo. And I totally relate and respect it. And you know what? It, it, I, will, I will be honest with you. Uh, uh, my brother, John, uh, who's the one who has the cancer, he's, he's a lot more willing to be more gung-ho. Than, and than the rest of us are, and you, you were right a about weird that. Thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it is, but he went through hell. I mean, they basically have to kill you and bring you back to life. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> and but it, that's what. I be, but I've been thinking of, like I said, I've been thinking about you a lot lately. And by the way, thank you for reading the article. I appreciate it. Um, I, I I've been thinking about you a lot lately, as when it comes to this, because it's like it's like there's very few people in the media who could relate to that sort of thing. And I, I think it's, it's good to, and, and you're, the podcast you're doing with uh, uh, Les is, I'm sure, a great comfort to people who uh, are just having to go through this uh, thing and seeing that there is another side. There is, there, is the, there is the light at the end of the tunnel. This is something that you can help us out with, everyone, because I, I listen to every episode. And uh, it's, it's nice to hear that sort of, inf- not, maybe not even information, but relatability, sure. I guess is the best way to put it. Well, I appreciate you talking about that podcast. It's called Unstoppable. And just by definition alone, everybody has something in life. Any, any person has a form of adversity in life that they have to overcome. And basically what we do is interview people and find out their mindset. How did they overcome these adversities? What did they use? What influence, talent, skills did they use to overcome them? And I think each of us can learn from one another when it comes to that. Absolutely, and uh, I appreciate it. Um, now to move on to other things, uh, but, but, and just kind of, I wanted to kind of talk about the current state of the Nuggets, but before I do that, before I do that, as you know, this is the 10th anniversary of the Mellow trade. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, did you, did you happen to hear Mellow's uh, interview with uh, uh, Woj? Uh, I did not, I, I meaning to hear it, I heard it was a wonderful, uh, walk down memory lane. What did he say? Well, it was, I kind of wanted to point out a couple things. He kept saying he, that Carmelo's view of Denver is very interesting because he views it as the city that was basically nothing until he got there. <laughs> if you ever like listen to Melo, it's like this. Like city he invented is, the city or something? Yes, yes. It's, it's one of those things I always, I always say, I think about Melo. He's got this kind of proprietal kind of view of uh, like when I got here the team was nothing and the city grew up with me and that sort of thing and I'm like oh my god but uh, he 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 kind of had that attitude again but he kept I think Mello said when he enters in the hall of fame he will go in as a Nick and 
even though he had all of his success with the Denver Nuggets. And that is one of those things where I'm like, it's just, that's what the whole thing that kind of perpetuates this kind of. Hold on. Did he, he, he actually used those words. He was yes. asked that question. He used those words. Yes. Okay. Cause I was prepared to, I was prepared to soft pedal this topic today. And this is the <laughs> first I heard that. Yeah. Now I have a completely different mentality. So let's go on. Okay. Yeah. He said you go in as an, as an, as a Nick, because he would be most known for his time with the Knicks, which is necessarily true. Um, and I thought, you know what, Mello, it's just every time, every time I want to, because I, I knew a lot of what was going on at the time. And there was a, some exigent circumstances that was influencing a lot of different things that was happening. I get it. But as soon as I hear that stuff, I'm like, you know what, man, I, I, I can't cut you a break anymore. I just can't. <laughs> you know, the topic came up on our radio show this morning. Is it time to let it go and um, admire and engage in Carmelo and, really embrace what he's all about. And I was the, the, the softy in the group saying, yes, you know, I, I really respect what he brought to the city and the team. I understand that uh, he helped reinvigorate a Wobegon franchise. He really did. He, along with other people, I mean, George Carl played a role in that. Other people did. Chauncey Billups played a role in that, obviously. And he really, I, I was ready to let it go. But if I have to hear that, what you just told me, that he um, he's going to go into the Hall of Fame as a Nick, that's pathetic. That that is that is a, that is somebody who doesn't understand his career track right. and when he was at his best. When was Carmelo Anthony his best? When he played for the Denver Nuggets. Right. When did Carmelo Anthony reach his peak as a talent? When he played for the Denver Nuggets. When did he advance the farthest as a Nugget? Right. It's ridiculous and somewhat right. petty to assume that people will remember him as a Nick. You know how they'll remember him as a Nick? As a bad player on bad teams. That's how they'll remember him as a Nick. <laughs> right. And I, I, like, I'm like you, Vic, because I was ready, because I, I've actually been a, a as uh, our friend Andy Feinstein would say, I was a mellow apologist, particularly when it was going on, because I kind of knew that he was told some things by some management that, and he brought it up on the Woj pod that, that, they were going to kind of retool around him and Mello took it badly and thought, I don't want to rebuild. And that's not necessarily, I think that was poor communication. And I think that Mello took it that way and, and things ended up the way they did. And I think, I think I was really to be in his corner, but I hear stuff like that. And I'm like, there's a guy who just doesn't understand how good he was at a time and just as, as an NBA player, at a certain moment in time, and it just bugged me. And it just you, bugged me. You know what, what's funny, as you say that, and it just dawned on me, Jeff, do you know the worst thing that happened to Carmelo Anthony in terms of self-awareness? The worst thing that happened that he was drafted the same year as LeBron James, and he was compared constantly to LeBron James. And early in his career, he constantly beat LeBron James. The Nuggets beat the Cavs in those head-to-head -head matchups. Right. So he hears his entire career, well, you know, Carmelo versus LeBron. You know, and I know, and the world knows, there's no comparison between the two players. Right. One is going to go down as a generational, one of the, if not one, the best, one of the two greatest, one of the three greatest to ever play the game. The other one is a Hall of Famer in his own right. But to compare the two is ridiculous. Right. And I think Carmelo went a little too deep in that and tried to keep pace. And one of the reasons he started feeling, I don't know, lonely in Denver is he wanted a little bit of what LeBron had maybe that notoriety, maybe 
hey, work and build around me. Right. LeBron took matters into his own hands. Maybe Carmelo felt the same. Right. And it's, and it's one of those things, and I hate relitigating the past, even though it's been 10 years, but you and I are the one of the, are two of the few people who were actually around when Melo was traded, uh, left in, in people who cover the Nuggets. Uh, I mean, even Dempsey was covering the Rams at the time, you know, even though he was on the, the story sure. with Hawkman. Um, and I, and I remember everything that went on and it was, a, it just, I mean, just kind of, and I'll kind of leave it at this is when you look back on that and you think of the entire time from when it may, was made clear that there was something going on and he's probably going to try to force his way out to the eventually and eventual trade. When you look back on that, cause you were at channel four at the time. Um, how insane was that whole experience? It was just nutty. I've never, it, I've been doing this for 12, 13 years yeah. now. I've never experienced anything like it. Uh, the Nuggets had never, um, they've never executed a trade at that level before. We've seen big trades. Listen, uh, David Thompson was traded for Bill Handlick, my patriot, my compatriot on the air, right? right? Me and Bill talk about it all the time. I'm like, Bill, you were traded for David freaking Thompson. Think about that, okay? We've seen Kiki Vandaway was traded. Uh, and they got a they got a, a ransom for that. They they got Fat Lever, Wayne Cooper, Calvin Nat. They got the makings of a great team for Kiki Vandaway. This is the biggest trade, and it will remain the biggest trade in Nuggets history. And the amount of people that came here, went there, went to other teams, all that business, the draft picks involved, the Nuggets may never experience anything like it again. So I understand why people are interested in talking about it. For me, I even after hearing what you just told me. I'm going to remember Carmelo's decade in Denver as fun. It was fun. It was fun to watch those teams. I had a great time going to the arena. Uh, back then, it was called Pepsi Center. Now it's Ball Arena, obviously. Some of the loudest venues, some of the loudest games. Uh, all those years not having been in the playoffs, that first playoff game against the T-Wolves, if you remember, when the I Nuggets remember. game three mm -hmm. at the arena. I, I swear to God, I've never heard it that loud ever since. It was crazy loud. Uh, it's been that long. So I prefer to remember the Carmelo era as a fun time. Now, we can judge whatever we want in hindsight and say whatever we want, but I'll go to my grave thinking that was, that was fun to be a Nuggets fan during that era. It was, and it, it, I, I want to remind people, the Nuggets from 1995 to, 19, to 2003 were – Absolute garbage. And uh, even though they had some good players, Antonio McDice came through yeah. there. Uh, Nick Van Exel, very interesting, if not combustible team from the year 2000. Um, I think that there was, there was some teams like that, but the Nuggets were terrible and they were uh, not worth watching. And there, they had ownership problems. All this stuff was happening. Yeah, they didn't build a fan base. There was yeah. nothing on which to build a fan base during that era. Right. And then Melo comes here, and then I'll never forget that game three. It was just, it was just insane. Insane at Pepsi Center. And Pepsi Center, uh, it, to me, I mean, or excuse me, Ball Arena, uh, doesn't really hold a candle to how loud McNichols could get, although just insane McNichols could get. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that was, it's, that was, that was just bonkers nutso. And then you go to the 2009 Western Conference Finals. I mean sure. – who could forget all of that? I, I choose to remember all the good stuff because like I didn't end as badly as we think it did. It's uh, he actually did the nuggets a favor by saying, I'll let you trade me and allow you to build up and all this stuff rather than yeah. make, make trouble like James Harden or uh, Anthony Davis. He didn't do that to us. Yeah. 
and I think that we kind of should look back on that with a little uh, better eye than we do right now. Yeah, he tiptoed it compared to some of today's guys. Right. But at the same time, I, I'm also going to say this. Perhaps we have a different ending. And what's sad about it, perhaps we have a different ending if George Carl doesn't get sick the following season. If they have some su- su- sustained, um, you know, the, it was the same team essentially coming back. Right. It was the same team. They were playing well. And then George gets sick. Right. And one thing leads to another. And, you know, that began the, the slide. So I, I refuse to look at that period of time as anything but fun, engaging, and the renewal of a Nuggets franchise. That's how I look at it. Right. Well, moving to the current squad, I mean, uh, this year has been a trial. I would say, uh, for the Nuggets. And even though Nikola Jokic is having one of those great seasons. And how can you diagnose this year, look at this year and think, and, and come to a conclusion of any, uh, basically any sort of saw hard and fast conclusion. I podcasted on it yesterday and I'm like, look, injuries, yeah. um, new players. Um, and at the same time, no doubt they have been extremely disappointing on top of all their issues that not that, how can you judge this team? And I, I don't know, as, as someone who sees them a lot more, I mean, than even I do, how could you, how can you look at this team and, 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 or, or what is the way you look at this team? I should say, here's how I see it. And I was a little wary of this in the off season when that whole Jeremy Grant in Broglio took place, uh, and it put them running uphill since then. I look at the Nuggets, this current rendition of the Nuggets, there are three different parts of them. There's the core, there are the two studs, Joker and Jamal, okay? There are the veteran players around them, and then there are the young first-year rookie players. So the core, here we are um, a couple months in, those guys are doing what we expected them to do. Joker's playing at a ridiculous level. Uh, Jamal has come around. He is looking like the Jamal we know that we saw in the playoffs. The rookies are being forced to play because that second level of player, the veterans that you sprinkle in there to help the time, they're hurt. They're they're consistently hurt. Gary's hurt. Paul's now hurt. Jermichael Green's hurt. These guys are not playing. Will Barton missed a couple. They're hurt. And when you have those veteran players unavailable, then you have to force rookies into the game. And there are no championship teams out there that play three to four rookies consistently. The Lakers don't even have a rookie. The Clippers carry one. He never sees the light of day. You tell me what rookie is featured on the Utah Jazz. Rookies don't play consistent minutes in the NBA. And when they do, you know what happens? You lose. Right. The Nuggets are forced to go to that level right now. By hook or by crook, they're forced to go there, and you see the results. And it's an amazing, and and I've said this a couple times, uh, it's amazing that, um, it's not amazing. I I think it makes you appreciate more what Nikola Jokic has done. um, Sure. And what he has accomplished this season, because really, truly, if you think about it, he has lifted this team to actually better than they are at the moment, and which is kind of something that I, I just, it's hard for people to kind of conceptualize because, you know, right. they're coming off of Western Conference Finals, but man, there was some massive turnover in the offseason. And most teams do not go through that amount of turnover 
and then come in like it, without replacing him with like well, I don't know what James Harden or Anthony Davis like. Sure. But if it, but if you get that much turnover on the edges, you're going to be that much worse. And I think that is what has influenced this team this year. And Nikola Jokic, I think, just in my view, has lifted this team to where they are. And then you saw it against Atlanta when he couldn't be the guy in that one. It's just the team couldn't get over the hump. Of, of, there was other yeah. mitigating factors in that game. But you see what's ha- what happens. And I think it makes me appreciate what Nikola Jokic has done this year even more. And, and maybe in the long run, when I say long run, I don't know, the next five years, Maybe this adversity, maybe the fact that they're growing up this way with, with Joker doing what he's done and Jamal helping out, maybe this will benefit them. Right. But for the short term, listen, man, I, I don't know what to tell you. Right. If you surrounded LeBron with three to four first-year players in the rotation, the Lakers wouldn't be what they are. You see right. what LeBron is when AD gets hurt, right? right? You see what that team is when AD's hurt. Not many teams – could sustain greatness when you have to play this many inexperienced players. Right. Now, you answer, or you ask, why? Why did they, why did they get to this? There's a lot of reasons why. I mean, the offseason was not kind to the Denver Nuggets. I don't believe they walked into that offseason thinking they were going to lose Jeremy Grant, obviously. Right. If he's on this team, the dominoes fall a different way. And – they wouldn't be in this situation, which isn't bad, mind you. Season right. is not over. Right. But they would not be 16 and 14, 30 games in. They just wouldn't. I know that. That's right. That's 100% right. Um, and when you look at the – okay, just, just, just on a micro level, the, the, the thing that everyone and, – and I do mean – and I've had to podcast on this far too much. I'll be quite honest with you, and I'm, I'm getting sick of it. I, I think I'm getting sick of the whole subject surrounding Michael Porter Jr. Just because it's not something that is going to resolve itself this year. Just in my view, it's a process. And this is a guy who missed basically two years of basketball and um, is playing, not, hasn't even played his 82nd game yet. And it's going to take some time. And it's not going to take the time that it takes for the season. It's just not, at least in my view. It's not going to take that time. Uh, and it's a process. And it's been a frustrating process. It's been frustrating because there's expectations. If this was the Nuggets circa 2017, would there be so much anxiety going on right now surrounding the development of Michael Porter Jr.? I, here's how I look at MPJ on this team. I want to look at it from Michael Malone's vantage point, his eyes. Would you say that Michael Malone's a pretty competitive guy? Yes. Right? Probably the most competitive person in the organization. You can see it in his face. He wears it. He wears competitive nature on his face. So when he first got to Denver, he was given a team in which he had to cultivate and develop young talent. He had a lot of it. I mean, he had all these young guys. All right, let's play him some minutes. Let's get good. So he went through that phase, and he did so swimmingly to the point where he got to the playoffs consistently. And then he gets to the Western Conference Finals. And then all of a sudden, the offseason comes around, and the head coach is told, well, let's get back to cultivating some young talent, developing some young talent. Do you think any coach wired like Michael Malone in the middle of a season, would he rather win or develop talent? What is his – what's the goal here? What, what do you think he wants to do? Coaches want to win, man. They want to win fast. They want to go where they 
already had gone and, and do better. So I guess it's hard for me to blame Michael Malone for the way he's handling Michael Porter Jr. when his goal is to win. And sometimes you have to take that spoonful of vinegar with the spoonful of sugar and say, let's, let's, let's get through the growing pains right now. And in maybe three or four months, it'll help us. It's hard. He is not wired that way. He is right. wired to win games. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, the, the, I don't know if you've, and once again, you don't have to comment on this if you don't have to. Uh, I don't know if you, you pay attention to, uh, to, to Twitter uh, when Malone takes what is referred to as his rage timeout. And I noticed it in the Atlanta game. And I noticed that he didn't, couldn't figure out what to do. And I was the first time I've seen that since about 2018. The first time I've seen a guy who really just didn't know what buttons to push yeah. and was kind of searching everywhere. And he searched in the wrong areas and he came to the wrong conclusion in my view, but he was searching. And I think that was, should clue everyone in just to, just from my perspective as, as a guy who just covers the team as the first time I've seen from my perspective is like where he is like not jiving with, with whatever's going on right now. And I think there's, yeah. a ten, there's a, a, to me from the outside, there's a tension there because with a guy like Porter and you have, you're playing Zeke Naji and RJ Hampton and you're playing Faku Campasso mm -hmm. a, a lot more minutes than he was getting at the beginning of the season. And you're like, I'm searching for everything and nothing's working. And there's, there was, I think, the 16-second timeout in the second quarter or third quarter, excuse me, was the breaking point I saw with him. Yeah. And sometimes he needs that. From what I've seen through history, he sometimes he needs the break in order for him to kind of start relaxing. Sure. And I think him relaxing, just in my own view, him re relaxing will probably benefit the team more going forward. Yeah, you know, I don't know what's taking place inside the room. You know, obviously, we're never there now during the pandemic, so we don't get to see. I don't know what's being said. Yeah, I don't hear the players going off on the coach because he's too hard on them. I've never heard that. I never hear that. I think what you hear, the brash, the abrasive, all that stuff after games when he's angry is one thing. But what he's doing in the room and what he's saying in the room is another. I, you're talking to the wrong guy here when it comes to how you handle – I could never be a coach. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not enough. I'm not patient enough. I mean, if I'm <laughs> Jeff, I almost laugh. I mean, if I'm coaching a team, I'm not that guy that sits back, taps my knee and says, I'll let him play through it. I could yeah. never do that, man. I'm too much hands-on control freak, whatever you want to call it. I, I I'm more enraged than anybody. So for me, I look at what Malone goes through and, and I say, God, how would you get these kids up to speed at warp speed? The goal this year, when they let those guys go, what was the goal? What was the franchise goal this year? It was to get MPJ as the third wheel. Was he not? That, that was supposed to be it, correct? 100%. 100%. That, Tim Connolly said it at the beginning of the year. You froze on me. What happened to your picture here? I don't uh -oh. see you anymore. Uh -oh. oh, there you are. Okay, there you go. I missed you for a second. Okay, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Can you, can that you, was can... the goal. Yeah. And, and so far, um, it hasn't worked out this way. Yeah. yeah. All right, you got me now. I'm sorry. We went through. If the goal was to get Michael Porter Jr. as the third option, the third wheel, well, that, that went through a few hiccups, didn't it? He missed two weeks, and then he missed more time, 
and then he hasn't been consistent. When he has been consistent, when he has scored, my God, it's been a pleasure to watch. It's been fun to watch. But uh, perhaps we have to redo the timetable on that because the season did not start out optimally for Michael Porter or the Nuggets. He missed too many games early for this thing to get going. And I'll put it on that for now. I'm, I'm on I'm a wait-and-see mode. Let's wait until, I don't know, maybe three-quarters of the way through the season to evaluate where he is as a player and how he's treated as a player. Uh, I, I agree with you there, and I think that what is what the progress will be is going to be di- dictated on how he looks with Nicola, how he looks with Jamal, and that only happens with reps. And like I said, I think Malone reached his breaking point to where I think he's now going to, I mean, just in – from judging from the last six years with him, he's going to relax a bit now. I think things will be a bit easier. Um, and starting tonight against Portland, which is going to be an interesting matchup, matchup there on the second night of a back-to-back. So I'm going to be curious to see how they kind of, kind of approach that uh, uh, tonight, particularly. But like, it's ironic that Carmelo Anthony is back in town uh, yeah. ten years after after he was traded. Like that's. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, um, can you imagine? Because I know that uh, Michael Malone is a defense-first kind of coach, but can you imagine some of the growing pains any coach, like how Michael Malone's wired if he had to coach Carmelo during that period too? And <laughs> can you imagine that? Because we remember how he played defense, right? Have right. you forgotten that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember Jeff Bazdelic pulling his hair out as was my <laughs> Yeah. So, so I guess here we are years later saying, you know, why is he so hard on MPJ? Man, coaches are hard on dudes who don't play D. You know why? Because they see it as an effort thing. They don't see it as a skill thing. It's like, can you put, can you put forth the same effort on that end of the floor, just half of it that you put on the offensive end, and then we're fine. If they see a lack of effort and know-how on defense, they go crazy. I don't know what coach doesn't. Right. You know, what? I, I, I think that's a, that's a good way to kind of wrap up the Nuggets conversation uh, because I think that's what everyone was talking about, Michael Porter Jr. And I, uh, that's not something that is going to get resolved. Um, but I want to get to the real reason I had you on. Um, you and I have both grown up in the city of Denver. Uh, we both love this city. And it is, to me, an interesting thing to think about because El Chapultepec went out of business and Lower downtown is a lot different than it was. You grew up in North Denver. I grew up in uh, Arvada. Um, we remember things. And one of the reasons, actually, I wanted to have you on is that, I, 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 I kid you not, I woke up and the Big Sur waterbeds commercial was hmm. stuck in my head. And I'm like, oh, my God, who would remember this who's still around? <laughs> oh, Vic Lombardi. I had a Big Sur waterbed. That's oh, you funny did. to say that. I bought one in 1985. I begged my parents to get a waterbed. We bought it. I hated it, but I was too, at the time, I was too distressed to tell them I hated it. So we kept it for a few years. <laughs> I can't believe you had a Big Sur Waterman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I've been thinking about it. And do you ever look nostalgically back on, because, you know, you're a little older than I am, but I, I mean, growing up in Denver in the 80s, it is a night and day different now than, than it was back then. And not necessarily in a bad way. It's just different. And I look back on it and I think, God, there's things that are, are, are gone now that, that weren't around. 
that 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 are that are like not around right now, but that I used to depend on, you know, yeah. to to like the Casey Fine Furniture Building. Sure. Right next to I-25. Which is now owned by um, KSC, as a matter of fact. They have a bunch of offices in there. That's right. <laughs> which is one of those things. But, I mean, do you, I, I mean, not to get too nostalgic, but as someone who loves Denver as much as I am, what is your, what is your eye to the future of this city? You know, because you, you left, and I think you went to Notre Dame, right? Yeah. Yeah, I left for 12 years. I left in 1988. And went to school, and then from there I got a job in Austin, Texas, and then from Austin, Texas I worked in Phoenix. So I had a 12-year period there, late 80s to the late 90s. I returned in 1999, where I uh, I missed a lot of that era, obviously because I wasn't here. I followed from afar. But if somebody had taken, I don't know, 14-year-old Vic, and dropped him in the city of Denver today, I would look around and go, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> and and I don't mean that badly. I love growth. I love where the city's going. I love the fact that people want to move here, that people want a piece of this. I love everything about it. Right. Now, I don't like some of the byproducts that come with it. I don't like traffic. Right. I hate traffic. Right. I don't like the price of homes and where they've gone. Right. I don't like a lot of that stuff. But that's what you get when people want to live in your city, when people want a piece of this. I understand it. It's changed so much, Jeff. I mean, it's... And it goes in cycles, you know, you know, when you get old, you get grumpy about it, but you know what? It all goes in cycles in North Denver growing up, man. I joke around that you couldn't ride your bike at night because people would steal your bike. I mean, I had four bikes stolen in one summer, the right. summer of 85. Right. I'm like, man, I built this, mo this mongoose dirt bike from scratch with some help from my brother, mm -hmm. paid for it with my own money. And it was stolen from our garage. And I'll never forget a couple of times riding my bike, people take, come up and just take your bike. So North Denver was not a place you wanted to hang. Right. Today, you go to North Denver, now called the Highlands. I refuse to acknowledge that. You go to North <laughs> Denver now, they'll give you a bike. They give bikes now. It's a completely different neighborhood. It's a completely different lifestyle. And my parents have lived there ever since. You know, my dad noted to me the other day, he goes, what's with all these dogs? Where'd they come from? Back <laughs> in the day, nobody had dogs. Nobody had pets. You were too afraid to walk around with a pet. Now everybody has a pet. <laughs> crazy no it's funny because uh, uh, how far away from uh lakeside did you grow up oh i was about a mile away i grew up on off the the corner of 44th and perry which is near 44th and tennyson so uh, i could hear at night the cars from the lakeside track right they had a racetrack there so <laughs> when we sat in our yard at night you could hear those cars deep into up, up until midnight when they, they they stopped the races you could hear that i lived equidistant from Lakeside and Elitches, so you could hear the roller coaster and the and all the screaming at Elitches. It was awesome. I can't think of a better place to grow up as a kid. See, the, uh, when I was growing up, we uh, we and this is an, an odd memory, but uh, we they would all the school system in Jefferson County would all uh, de designate, um, particularly where we were. Uh, some schools would go to Elitches, some schools would go to Lakeside, and we would go to Lakeside every single time, every year. It was like the school outing. And uh, it was later on that uh, some kid from one of the other schools said when I was eventually going to high school, it was like, you know, Lakeside's like the poor kid's park. <laughs> <laughs> and I well, went, what? <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm one of the few people, Jeff, that worked at both. I worked at, at Lakeside uh, for a week before I got the job at Elitch's. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I worked at both. 
but but as as and I'm not going to lie to you, as a kid, if you had asked me, would you rather go to Lakeside or Elitches, I'd pick Lakeside ten out of ten times. Yeah. And the reason is it was cheaper. The rides were more rebellious. I mean, the, heck, the fun house. Can you imagine having the fun house in today's age? Letting you in a place where kids would end up skidding their elbows, bleeding from the chin. The stuff that took place in the funhouse, they would not allow it today. It'd be illegal. I loved Lakeside. It was, I cherished, and the fact that it's still there, oh, what a gift. Oh, I'm going to tell you, Vic, I, I made the mistake of going on the wild chipmunks. And oh, I, yeah. my sides, my brother was in front of me, the, the one actually who has leukemia. And I'll uh, never forget it. He and I were both in those little slot cars, basically, that they had on those tracks. And our sides were so sore. I lifted up my shirt and there was a big bruise right around my ribs. Just this huge bruise that went around. And I'm like, how is this legal? <laughs> Dude, some of the things they had over there, and they still have. They had the mini roller coaster, right? right? This is a true story. I think I was maybe 10 years old. And my aunt, who was visiting from Italy, she's a nun, Sia Rosetta. She stays in line with me. We were going to go on the train at Lakeside. You remember the train that took you around the lake, right. right? So we're in line at the train. And I didn't know any better. We were in line for the wild chipmunk. Oh, my God. So here's this lady who had no idea that we were going to do a ride that was not a train around the lake. We were going to ride something that basically broke your neck. And I'll never forget coming off that thing, man. Oh, it was horrifying and hilarious at the same time. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Uh, before I get you out of here, Vic, I want to uh, want to just mention, shout out to uh, Easy E, your dad. I enjoy the... Uh, I enjoy the videos that you put up there. Thanks, man. Uh, it is clear. It is clear that uh, that uh, you love your family uh, as as I do mine. And um, I, I I think one of the things that I've appreciated most about you, uh, at least in the last five six years, you've been doing those Periscope videos, is that is that it's 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 just kind of a good way for you to, to for people to identify what family is like and 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 the importance of family. Yeah. And why did you start doing those videos with your dad? Was it just something that out of the blue one day you're like, I got, I got, I got to, I got to, I got to film this for posterity or something like that? Yeah, you know, I did it one time, and I got such a positive reaction uh, via Twitter and Periscope that I said, why, why are people? I've always wondered because I, you know, we're all unique to our own lifestyles, and and I grew up a certain way as a as the son of two immigrant parents that came here from Italy knowing nothing, knowing not how to speak English at all, uh, very little education. My dad had a sixth grade education. Uh, my mom graduated high school. They came when my dad was 24, my mom was 19, and they started a new life. So I grew up speaking fluent Italian. I didn't speak English until I was maybe six, seven years old. My, my parents, old school, thrifty, you name it, that's what we were. Um, so I guess when you grow up that way, you don't know any better, you don't know any different. And some of the customs and cultures we have at our home, to me, it's, it's like, yeah, this is what we do. But for most people, they're like, what is going on here? And so I decided, you know, just to start putting some of this stuff out there and, you know, like it, having people watch and, and discuss. Like, I, I didn't know it wasn't normal, Jeff, for me and, my, me and my two brothers, both younger. We eat lunch at my parents' house pretty much every day uh, right. at one o'clock. We, we convene there. My mom has lunch for us and she has our names on our lunch. And I thought, I didn't know that was abnormal. I, I didn't realize that people didn't do that. And so 
I just decided to, you know what, I, I want to start documenting some of this uh, in, in video because pretty much what I do for a living. It's important to me to honor my parents. It's vital for me to honor my parents because what they overcame to give us the gift of, uh, of, of growing up in this country is I'll never approach that no matter what I do. I will never, ever accomplish what they accomplished uh, with very little income, very little, there's no silver spoon for them. They showed up here with nothing, nothing. And they gave all their kids a private education and a college education and a foothold on life. So for me, I consider that, you know, I'm, this isn't payback by any means, but I want people to see, I want people to understand. I want people to, uh, to feel what I felt. You know, I, uh, I really enjoy those videos and I really enjoyed when you had Gallo come over and, and, you know, hang with your dad and all that stuff. That was fun. Um, I, I was, my brother, you just reminded me, my brother's best uh, friend growing up, their last name was Smalldone. Okay. And, and I'm like, I wonder, I always asked by my brother, I said, is that the same, is that the same family? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the, is well, that you know, the, you, you got, yeah, you got to ask. My football coach in high school was Smaldone, Phil Smaldone. Some are related, some are not. People ask me all the time, are you related to Vince Lombardi? When I was a kid, I'd say, yeah, I lied. Heck no, I'm not related. <laughs> Having the same name doesn't necessarily mean you're related, but you'll use it to your advantage when you have to. Right. I used to tell people I was related to Craig Morton. So. Sure, why not? <laughs> I said so. Uh, all right. Well, Vic, uh, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I know you've got to got to get to you know, you've got a family. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to come on to CSG. And anytime, I, I would love to have you on anytime again, man. You, uh, this has been a fantastic talk. And even if you want to just go down and talk about the old spaghetti factory, I'm down. So. That's great. Hey, Jeff, it, it was a pleasure. And I, I yearn for the day when I can meet you again in the media room at Ball right. Arena and we can enjoy a couple laughs before a game. That'd be so good. I, I've yeah. never appreciated the, the crappy media food as much as I do now. So. Tell me about it. Thanks, Vic. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.